Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, Ray Gehringer felt isolated growing up. You know, I really kind of bought into this national narrative that's existed for a long time that there aren't queer and trans people in rural places. But they learned otherwise. Now they're collecting and sharing the stories of rural LGBTQ people. Also, surface mining changes the landscape in a way that makes flooding worse. And there's no easy fix. The big question as to whether um, reclamation ever restores the function of, of the watershed, the answer is no. And we meet an Appalachian village witch who wonders, how come we don't hear about more female cryptids? Are all cryptids men? I mean, there's the Boojum, there's Mothman, there's the New Jersey Devil. Are they all boys? You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. For 10 years, West Virginia native Ray Gehringers traveled around the country, recording oral history interviews with LGBTQ people in rural areas. Beginning in 2020, they started producing those interviews for a podcast called Country Queers. Something about just enjoying just the sound of the rain, the smell of the rain, the distant trees, the color of fall in the country. As I'm going down my path to like be colonized or learn more about my culture and language, that concept of something being both broad and specific, but also changeable and fluid, I started to realize that really my ability to understand my own Hawaiian culture had already been practiced in my own life by being queer. Generationally, what has gone through my great-grandmother, through my mother, through every member of my family, sits with me. That was the start of the season two trailer of Country Queers. That season dropped back in late 2021. Garinger is now working on a Country Queers book. I recently talked with them about the project and some of their favorite moments from the last decade of interviews. So Ray Garinger, founder of Country Queers, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to talk with you today. So how did you first conceive the Country Queers project? It, in some ways, it's a long story um, that I'll, I'll kind of try to keep it short. But um, I grew up in West Virginia. I grew up mostly on the border of Greenbrier and Pocahontas counties. Um, and I had never met an out queer person before I left the state for college in Western Massachusetts in the early 2000s. And so... You know, I really kind of bought into this national narrative that's existed for a long time that there aren't queer and trans people in rural places, um, which meant I ended up spending about 10 years away from home outside the region um, before finally moving back home in 2011 uh, to 2012. And at that point, you know, I started to see queer people around town um, at the Walmart, at the state fair, wherever it was I went when I got off the farm, off the mountain. I just kind of got frustrated. I felt like not only had I never been told anything growing up here about the fact that there are queer people here, I also hadn't seen any evidence of rural queer stories in sort of a national queer media landscape. And so I started the project uh, out of those kind of intersecting frustrations and and needing for myself to find and meet other rural and small town queer people and figure out how they were making it work to to build a life in a place like this. What form did that project first start to take shape? How did you start that journey? So it started as and continues to be an oral history project at its core. And I didn't have any formal training in oral history or audio recording or interviewing or anything like that. Um, People ask me why oral histories, and I don't actually know. I hadn't read a bunch of oral history books or studied it or anything, but somehow just the idea of sitting down with people and and asking about their lives was really appealing to me. And um, so I had saved up and bought a little Zoom H4N audio recorder and started doing interviews. Um, some of Some of the first interviews happened with 
folks I met through the Stay Project, which I was a part of at the time before aging out, and then started to just like slowly gather more interviews as I would be traveling somewhere to see friends or go to a wedding or, you know, wherever I was, I'd kind of reach out to people I knew um, to see if they knew any real queer people. So the the project kind of grew organically in that way. And it was about seven years of, of doing oral history interviews. And, and I wasn't really sure what the best format was going to be to share them. And I also you know, the project um, for many, many years was happening just in my free time outside of full-time work and grad school and with basically no budget. So the original dream, actually, when I started the project was to make a book. Um, I had this sort of overly ambitious idea. I was going to put together a book of photos and interviews from like every state in the U.S. Um, But in 2014, when I took a months-long road trip and went through only six states, I think, and did 30 interviews in 30 days, but drove 7,000 miles. I realized that was, um, that level of gathering stories over such a wide range was not going to be possible for me. So, so yeah, it's been a long time trying to figure out, um, how best to present the stories and also trying to figure out how to have even space and time to work with them. Um, so started recording interviews in the summer of 2013, and then we didn't end up launching the podcast till the summer of 2020. So there were a lot of years of just sort of slowly plugging away at doing oral history interviews as I could here and there. How did you eventually land on that podcast format? I was, you know, I was trying to work on Country Queers while for a while working in rural public schools in West Virginia where I wasn't able to be out at work. And then went to grad school to try to get some time for the project, um, and then ended up at WMMT um, in Whitesburg, Kentucky. I was the public affairs director there for about three years. At that job, I was um, I was responsible for about eight hours a week of radio content. So because of just the pace of that job and how small our staff was, I got pretty good at like turning around audio pretty quickly. And so really ended up deciding to do the podcast because it felt the most possible for a little DIY project with very little funding and very little time. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people start a podcast because they want to start a podcast. And for Country Queers, it was like, how do we get these? You know, at that point, I'd been gathering these stories for seven years. I had, I don't know, probably over 60 sitting on my hard drive and really wanted to get them out to people. And the decision to do a podcast really came down to, it felt like something I'd be, I'd be able to produce in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of money compared to like a book or other ways to present the stories. All right. So here you are 10 years in, you spent countless hours interviewing dozens of people and spent, you know, tens of thousands of miles on your car traveling around to do it. What are some of the the favorite moments that are really stuck with you from from this process? Gosh, there's been so many. I, I mean, it's really it's really hard to just pick a couple, but um, it's interesting because I'm because I'm working on a on a book about the project right now, and part of what that's given me the opportunity to do really for the first time in in this decade of doing this work is to really like is to really sit and look at all of it and listen back and read back through through this as a collection, you know. And and one of the things that's been really f- fun about working on the book is um, I still have really vivid memories of each of the interviews. And at this point, it's, it's 90 or more um, over the course of the decade. But for all of them that have happened in person, which is the majority of them, and all of the interviews pre-pandemic were in person, um, you know, I can still remember, like, details about the time I spent with people. And a lot of, I'd say the majority of the interviews have happened in people's homes. And so there's just been such a, um amazing, like, generosity by by narrators, by people who've shared their stories with with me, with the project. And so... Yeah, I think about sort of like meals that I've eaten with people. I think about people's pets. I think about, you know, things I remember about their houses or their homes or their property. I really fondly remember um, actually in the first year, an interview I did with someone who has since passed away, who's um, she she was for a variety of reasons not comfortable using 
her um, legal name. And so the pseudonym that we gave her is Frances. Um, and at the time she was 78 and she lived in Western Massachusetts and she was a former nun. Um, and she just was f- just like feisty as can be and started out the interview basically by like, interviewing me about the project and giving me a bunch of suggestions about what I should change. (laughs) Um, And she was just delightful. Yes. I know from experience that one can't um, conduct numerous interviews requiring deep listening without being changed. Mm. How has, how have these interviews changed you? Oh gosh. I mean, so I think it's, I think it's hard for me to even, no sometimes because I because it's been such a huge part of my life for the past decade you know I mean and it's it's very rarely um been like my full-time job (laughs) but it's been really constant um in my brain in my body in my in my heart kind of this whole decade so um and also my own experience you know trying to still figure this out for myself as a rural queer person um in rural Appalachia. So one thing is just, I'm still kind of like every time I do an interview, just I'm a little confused. And I'm also just like, so overwhelmed with gratitude for how trusting people are, you know, how like generous and, and vulnerable people are in these oral histories. And I, and I think there's something really special about oral histories in particular, um, and I think there's something really special about oral histories between people who have some shared layers of identity, um, particularly for like marginalized communities, because it's this chance to like really intentionally sit down together and connect in this way that like I think it's really good for us as a species. You know what I mean? <laughs> to like to like get the chance to to sit down and really like listen to someone in that way and, and really listen to them talk about their life and their memories and, you know, the joys, the traumas, all of it. And, and to like make meaning of what it's resulted in for them. I mean, it's just, it just feels like such a gift to me every time. And I'm, I'm still kind of confused why, why it's worked, why people agree to talk to me, but um, it's, it's just so incredible. But yeah, I mean, I don't know, just I feel like there's so much wisdom in in these interviews that people have gained just through living their lives. And a a lot of it is about sort of like humor, having a sense of humor. And a lot of it is about sort of a sense of resiliency that I think is is pretty common among rural queer people across really wide differences in geography and other layers of identity. Yeah. Well, Ray Garinger... I'm glad you're braving through the confusion and the, the, <laughs> the, the effort that this involves and that you're sharing it with us. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was Ray Geringer, creator of Country Queers. Geringer is currently working on a Country Queers book. One of the people they interviewed early on for the project is Alondra Williams. Williams passed away in September of 2020 at the age of 41. They were an organizer and faith leader from East Tennessee, and they had a love for their small town. This interview was done in 2013 and was part of the first season of the Country Queers podcast. Let's listen. Question is, wait, I lost it. How do you feel about being queer in country? Or maybe you don't identify as country. <laughs> or a country queer. I don't know. Country queer. I don't actually know if I identify as a country queer. Like, I don't actually, I mean, like, I feel like I identify as someone who is from a small zone. I feel like I'm, I identify as somebody who is tied to the land. I feel like I did. I mean, country is complicated, and it's probably based upon my own internalization. Let's just, I mean, let's just go there, right? So it's like, it took me, I hated East Tennessee my entire life. Hated it. So my family's from Florida. 
They're not from like the big busting metropolis. I mean, like now some of them live there. But they're from rural Florida. Um, and that was fine. When I think country, I think East Tennessee. And it took me 23 years to be fine with East Tennessee. Um, <laughs> now I'm okay. But it took a long, long time. Um, I mean, I clearly don't identify as an urbanite. So I guess that's the other option of urbanite is, is country small town. Um, so what was the actual question? So how do you feel about being like, queer and maybe not urban? Um, you know what I mean I feel like here's actually I realized how I feel I feel like because of it I'm able to straddle everything and I'm just as comfortable going into the country bar and doing the thing and just having a good time as I am sitting at the football game as I am being at the gay bar in the city like all of it is fine (laughs) and I think that that is what it means for me to be country queer is that like you don't you can't leave your folk at the door you can't act like you grew up with people that weren't like the people that are acting all kinds of crazy and all kinds of ways um and it's different it's not like you i mean i go to new york all the time and there is definitely a difference i can't handle new york for so long and i'm like i got to go um and what being queer means in new york is not what it means for me um and so I do think, like now I'm very happy with it. I wasn't for a very long time. Um, but I'm happy now. I'm very happy now. And I think um, one thing that I feel like it's really important is for other people to feel happy and rooted in who they are. Um, and from whence they came. And to be really thankful. I mean, once it's like I remember forget having this conversation with my dad and, and my parents. We're, I'm really close to my whole family. And because we were talking about all this, a whole bunch of stuff and pushing back. And at some point he was like, you know what? He's like, he's like, we, I had a cousin from every single one of my family that was queer. He's like, for, well, he wouldn't say queer because black people don't use that. Black people mostly use same gender love um, and gay. No, they don't actually use gay. They use same gender love. Um, so he's like, you know, he's like, he's like, he's like, I have four cousins, gay men, gay women. He's like, everybody knew, everybody knew their partners. They were at every family reunion. They were hanging out. They were everywhere. He's like, and it wasn't actually, it was, but it was never talked about. They were just there. He's like, and nobody got kicked out the home. Everybody was just there. He's like, and so now I have to look at like my, um, I have a younger cousin. There's, and who's also another one of a twin. I'm a twin. He's another one of a twin. And he was like outside of Pensacola in a cantonment. And now he's in LA happening. And it's like, okay, this is a little much. And, it, and we were having the conversation about what it means to be okay in your skin. And what it means to like, but he is fine. He's like, you know, he's like, my family was always extra supportive. And the ones that aren't, they don't say nothing. Because like, and so I think that's the one thing I think about my family. It's like, there's never, there's been like moments of stupidity. But like throughout, there's never been a huge anything. They're just like, you are who you are. Like, we're not going to change you. We're not, clearly you're not going anywhere. Like, we don't do that. That's not that's not the Williamses. Um, and so I think that's helped. I mean, I think, yeah. That's an interesting thing about what it means to still be. I mean, I also think it's different. Being here also means that, like, I've basically decided that I have sometimes have relationships and other times don't have them because who I'm attracted to mostly isn't walking around East Tennessee. And that, to me, is also what it means is that, like, there are times where I'm like, okay, do I, if I want a relationship, do I actually have to get up and move? Do I have to always be relegated to the long-distance relationship? Um, and that's not, the, I mean, and there's good long-distance relationships out there, and there's good folk, but it can get real challenging to find somebody. I think especially as a black queer person and a mostly white child that doesn't mostly date white people, it gets tough. And that's the part where I think it's tough. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I love where I'm at. I'm happy I get to see all my family. And that, for me, is what matters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just like when people are, like, happy to be where they're from. You know, and carry that back with them. Actually, what makes me most happy is when people go back home. Right? When people, like, go to, like, Atlanta. And they're like, you know what? I think I'm going to go back to Tuskegee. Or, like, that's what, that's what makes me super happy. Um... When folk are like, you know what, I actually have what I need 
and I got what I needed and I can now go back home and root in and change where I'm from. That makes me, that like makes my day. Um, and what makes me happy too is to like be home, like to walk around and randomly like see somebody that I haven't seen since I was like in high school. That like makes me happy. I mean, that's not proud, but it makes me happy because I wouldn't be like other places. Even though I see people I know everywhere, it wouldn't be like that other places. Um, I realized like the thing that made me the happiest was I went, like my brother and I had our birthday party. And every single person at that party, except for like the youth that came with me, were all people I had known since I was in like between the, between zero. The old, and the, the newest people were when I was in like my freshman year of college. Everybody else, I'm 34 now. Everybody else I've known forever. And I was like, I have had a party with people I've known for 15, 10, 34, 30 years. And I mean, and we're all having the best time ever. And that was like the happiest thing. Is I was like, who would have thunk that we would all still be here? And people came back and like I saw a friend I hadn't seen in years. And, I, and everyone's got kids or they're like partnered or married or whatever in the world they're doing. Some of most of them are. Um, and I think that's what makes me proud to be where I'm from. Is that like you don't get that other places. Um and to actually have all of us like actually like get over ourselves because I feel like people have had to grow and shift and change a lot <laughs> in 30 years a lot um for yeah for us to all be in the same space and be happy yeah that was good That's a segment from the first season of Country Queers, a podcast produced by Ray Geringer. Geringer's forthcoming book is set to be published by Haymarket Books in fall 2024. You can find out more on our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, climate change and surface mining practices like filling valleys with mine debris making flash floods worse. Engineers with knowledge about how uh, runoff happens on a slope or on a mountaintop have proven beyond question that the valley fields do not reduce the flow of water whatsoever. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by 16 Hands, presenting self-guided studio tours with handmade crafts in Floyd County, Virginia, October 21st and 22nd. Information at 16hands.com. In August, historic flooding swept through central and southern West Virginia. Sudden heavy rain swept down the mountains, turning streams into rivers. The flood struck so swiftly, dozens of people had to be rescued. But just as quickly as the floodwaters rose, they subsided, leaving wreck and ruin. Flash floods like this have become a regular occurrence in much of Appalachia. WVPB's Brianna Haney investigated the recent flooding near Charleston and has this story. Anna Goodnight's yellow panel home sits along Little Creek Holler. Her home and all the other homes on this street are accessible by a small bridge that crosses a trickling creek. On August 28th, she was waiting along the road, holding her son's hand, waiting to put him on the bus. It was raining and had been raining on and off for a couple days. At 6.45 a.m., Anna looked up the road and noticed the small creek, which is usually just above a trickle, was the slightest bit higher than normal. I looked up the road, I called her dad, I said, are you sure everything's still good? Yeah, sure. I said, are you sure, are you sure everything's going to be okay? He said, yeah, it should be, everything's fine. A couple minutes later, 
I looked up the road, it literally looked like the dam opened and all this came just gushing down. Anna ran over the bridge, back to her house to grab her other child and her dogs, then back over the bridge through a thin veil of water that was coming up over it. We had a bridge with our driveway right here and as soon as we got across it, it wiped the whole thing out. And when I got in the car to leave, you could see it follow us all the way down just rushing out. The bridge that connects the road to her house was washed away. Another one of her neighbors was not able to cross the creek in time. And she came running down the holler with four babies and she climbed over the mountain to get to the interstate to get away from it because she couldn't get out of here. The residents in this area are used to floods. In fact, many West Virginians live in these hollers or areas low in the valley lined up with the creek where they are vulnerable to flash floods. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association, West Virginia is historically one of the top states for rain, most notably in the mountains. But the residents that live along Little Creek all said this flood was different. I have never witnessed anything like that. That's why when everybody keeps asking and um, a statement was made from somebody, this is when, when you get a, you know, an alert that you need to leave your home. Well, there was no alert. There was no warning. There was not a flood warning. There was nothing. A flood warning was not issued until 7 a.m., 15 minutes after Goodnight said the flood started. Most residents said as quickly as the water went up, it went down. And that's characteristic of a watershed that has been impacted by surface mines, says Nicholas Zag, a professor of forest hydrology at WVU's Mountain Hydrology Laboratory. When we get into surface mine systems and when we get into urbanized systems, because of all the impervious surfaces and the lack of vegetation and lack of soils, we see a very flashy storm flow response where the stream rises very quickly, it peaks very quickly, and then it falls very quickly. And that shape of the hydrograph does say a lot about what's going on in that watershed. Zeg says in an undisturbed watershed, different things happen to the precipitation. Some of it is absorbed by the ground and stored for later use. Some of it is absorbed by trees and used in a process called transpiration. Some of it is held in the ground or puddles and eventually evaporates. He says even if that water does eventually find its way into the creek, it typically releases the water over a longer period of time, making the peaks lower, even if it's the same amount of water flowing through the creek. Biological system that normally would attenuate that rainfall is no longer there. And so we would expect increases in runoff um, on landscapes that have been disturbed through something like surface mine, through surface mining. And reclaimed mines don't do much better. You know, the big question as to whether um, reclamation ever restores the function of, of the watershed, the answer is no. That's because, Zeg says, those mines, even when complying with state and federal law, usually just plant exotic grasses on top of the mined areas. So this requires, you know, built infrastructure to kind of manage the, the runoff that's coming off of these impervious surfaces that are associated with the mine. So even when it's reclamated, it's still disturbed landscape that is largely dominated by minerals and rocks as opposed to soils and, and trees. And the areas that were flooded are wrapped with older, spiraling contour mines and dotted with newer mountaintop removal mines. Mountaintop removal mines are the most common form of modern coal mining because they are really efficient. And so what this does is it starts at the top of the mountain, um, it removes the trees, it removes the soils, and then it uses explosives to remove the geologic overburden on top of those coal seams. That geological overburden is an industry word for a million pieces of dynamited rock that used to be the top of a mountain. That rock, or geological overburden, has to go somewhere, so they put it in the valleys. Zeg says those valley fills store water. The research that we've done on this has showed, um, at least for the uh, Coal River watershed in the southern coal fields in West Virginia, um, maximum flows um, have been uh, decreasing in that watershed, and it was our belief that that was associated with the valley fills. But Zeg says that it's hard to say if those valley fills help when it comes to torrential rainfall, like the 11 inches of rain that eastern Kanawha County saw in late August. Some experts say valley fills make floods worse, like whistleblower, expert witness, activist, and mine and health safety expert Jack Spadaro. 
uh, engineers with knowledge about how uh, runoff happens on a slope or on a mountaintop have proven beyond question that the valley fields do not reduce the flow of water whatsoever. That's a myth that was created by the industry to justify what they're doing. It's important to emphasize that with the amount of rainfall that Eastern Kanawha County had, there would have been a flood regardless, says Egg. You know, whether it's an old growth forest or a parking lot or a surface mine, when you drop 8 to 10 inches over a couple of hours, um, there's going to be a flood that comes off that landscape. Spadaro agrees, but says that surface mines make floods worse, whatever the scenario. Uh, there have been many studies that show there's an increase of peak discharge during a storm period. It can range between a 150% increase to as high as a 1,000% increase in the flow of water that's coming off those watersheds. And that's what's been causing these floods. And as temperatures rise due to climate change, the air holds more water, making heavy rainfalls happen more often. So for every one degree temperature change in the atmosphere, one degree warming, the atmosphere can actually hold 4% more water. Um, But more telling is a recent study by Climate Central that actually showed for Huntington, West Virginia, um, hourly rainfall has increased by about 28% since the 1970s. And so in an hour, when it's raining, there's 28% more moisture in the air that's falling. And that could account for at least some of the relentless rain that fell on the watersheds of Fields Little and Slaughter Creek Sunday night through Monday morning. Just a few miles beyond those communities devastated by flash floods, near the headwaters of those creeks sits active coal mines. It's a relatively small creek, and yep, um, it has a surface mine um, upstream. And so, you know, I think it would be hard to exclude that surface mine playing a role in um, the stream flow that was experienced downstream. Um, I would expect that that surface mine played a role in stream flows downstream. Now, whether that was enough to create the floods that were experienced, um, hard to say, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. Downstream from that mine, Sandwiched between two steep green slopes in the Little Creek Holler, where Anna Goodnight and her family live, the effort to clean up the destruction those raging waters left behind has begun. The street is lined with piles of soggy personal belongings waiting to be picked up by debris cleanup crews. called the governor's office. I have been in touch with DEP and everyone, Red Cross, Salvation Army, FEMA, has been a complete waste of resources for this state. The state and the government have completely and totally let us down in this. Frustration in this holler is balanced with helping each other pick up the pieces. Many who've lost their homes are at other neighbors' houses helping them. Every house had a neighbor or church group there helping them gut the water-saturated walls, carrying groceries down through the steep creek to their homes, lending equipment, or just lending an ear. That was the case for John Chambers and his sister. They had just put their childhood home on the market when the flood came through. The kitchen with tile floors was now an empty room with bare sheetrock, watermarked plywood, and exposed pipes. John said he had just started working on his own house because he'd been helping others. I got mud and water. They got 14, 15 inches of mud, got the doors pinned shut, blowed open, can't walk in the house. What are you going to do? You going to stand there and watch them, look at them with a shovel? No. You're going to get out and you're going to help. You're going to do what's, what's right. Yeah. The creek bed, the streets, everyone's yards, and most people's homes are filled with this deep, yellow, sandy, silty mud. And lots of coal scattered around the area. Coal. There's coal. There's coal in my garage. There's coal. There's coal. I mean, it's everywhere. Little pieces of evidence giving way to this reason or that reason not to say blame needs to be placed or whatnot, but I need a little peace of mind because had I not been off work Monday morning and been out here put my son on the bus, he would have been here alone putting himself on the bus and he would have been stuck. And this community is searching for answers. How did this happen? Why was it so bad this time? Was it surface mining, climate change, timbering, a sediment pond, an act of God? 
I won't say it's an act of God. God wouldn't do this to people. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Brianna Heaney in Little Creek. A new study finds that climate change could make poison ivy even worse. Researchers use museum specimens to measure how poison ivy leaves have changed with the growing levels of carbon dioxide in the air. The Allegheny Front's Carol Halsopel has the story. Mason Heberling, associate curator of botany at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, pulls a stack of folders out of a cabinet with a green Mr. Yuck sticker on it. The museum's herbarium has 133 dried poison ivy specimens from Pennsylvania, dating from 1838 to the 2010s. This one's really cool. It's from uh, June 1884, 18th Ward, Pittsburgh, collected by John Schaefer. It's super old. Some are red and others have berries, but they all have those infamous leaves of three. Heberling says the study using these specimens was pioneered by then-Chatham undergraduate Alyssa McCormick, a research intern. It's based on a pair of influential studies from the early 2000s, one where poison ivy was grown indoors with high and regular carbon dioxide levels, and another where a forest plot was artificially enriched with carbon dioxide. The studies showed poison ivy could be a winner when it comes to climate change, growing larger leaves with more CO2 and becoming more toxic to people. But those were experimental studies. Heberling and McCormick wondered about an observational one. We kind of stared at the specimens for a really long time to kind of think, what can we measure from them? They measured stomatal density, or the number of stomata or pores on the leaves, which is how plants take in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis and release oxygen and water. We do that in this really fancy way. Um, You put a little bit of nail polish on on the dried leaf, let the nail polish dry on the leaf, and then you can pull off the nail polish and it makes kind of a cast of the underside of the leaf um, without damaging the specimen. Heberling says the amount of stomata that some plant species make correlates with carbon dioxide. So they wanted to know if poison ivy adjusted its stomatal density with more carbon dioxide. And they had another question. Do all plants do this or is this a special poison ivy thing? So they looked at another woody vine, Virginia creeper, and staghorn and poison sumac, both related to poison ivy, but trees, not vines. They also looked at leaf size and sent small samples of the leaves away for analysis to measure different forms of carbon in them. The earliest specimens in the study are from around 1840, when atmospheric carbon dioxide was about 280 parts per million. And today we're well over 400. They found that unlike the two tree species, poison ivy and Virginia creeper decreased their stomatal density with increased carbon dioxide over the last 200 years, which means that per unit area, fewer stomata are present. But the leaves of the vines tended to be larger, as in the previous studies. So if the leaf area is larger without increasing the number of pores, the plants might benefit from increased light capture for photosynthesis without losing as much water. They don't really know. Heberling says a big takeaway from the study is that poison ivy does seem to be doing better with climate change and specifically more CO2 in the atmosphere, but so are other vines. I hear a lot of people talking about vines taking over their yard, not only poison ivy, but other you know wild grapes and other things. And so this study also kind of lends to that, that there is um, definitely a carbon dioxide enrichment story here in, in vines. The museum study didn't measure poison ivy's toxicity, the production of the oily urushiol that gives many of us an itch rash. But Heberling says more studies using the herbarium collection are in the works. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. It's the October spooky season. My local Kroger's aisles are full of candy and Halloween decorations. And I can safely report, witches are still very much part of the holiday decor. But here in Appalachia, a lot of people take witchcraft more seriously than broomsticks and black cats. Wise women still practice herbology. They trace the patterns of the moon and remember other folk traditions that have been handed down from elders. H. Byron Ballard is the author of Small Magics, Practical Secrets from an Appalachian Village Witch. She's also a practicing witch in Asheville, North Carolina, Producer Bill Lynch recently spoke with her about what that means. Byron, first, thanks for coming on Inside Appalachia. Uh, It's a pleasure to speak to you. Um, It's not very often I get to speak to an an actual Appalachian village witch. So (laughs) you you may be the first, 
You may be. I don't know, Bill. You know, I listened to this show and I'm pretty sure you've probably talked to a witch or two already. They just might not identify that way. Well, just to kind of get as a getting to know you sort of thing, uh, how did you become such a thing? How did you become an Appalachian village witch? Well, I mean, I took that on as a as a branding thing, just to be honest. I mean, I'm I'm Appalachian multiple generations back and I've been a witch my whole life. My mother's family all identified themselves and were identified with that word back to like five generations that I know of. So I've always been that. And then when it came time for me to to kind of have a a hat rack to hang all my hats on, Mm -hmm. that felt like a good one. So I I called myself the village witch. And I know some people who function as village witches in Britain. And one of them contacted me and she was like, well, what exactly is it you do that you think you're a village witch? And I said, well, I go out and I bless the cornfields and I I used to bless the tobacco crop and I'll come out and clear your house if it's got something uncomfortable in it and I'll bless your babies and I'll, you know, bury your grandmas and, you know, all that stuff. And, and, and my friend said, Oh, well, no, that's, that's exactly what a village witch does. And I said, well, yeah. Witchcraft or being a witch in the 21st century, how is that different than being a witch in the 20th century or even the 19th century? I would say it's less threatening than it used to be, but in some places it's still just as threatening. Um, How is the role different? That's a really good question. I mean, for people like me, the role isn't any different, obviously. I'm going to do a baby blessing. I'm going to do a hand fasting when people want to get married. I will do a funeral, all that stuff that people traditionally did. Plus, right now, I've got tinctures laid up in the dining room that I have to remember to go in and shake every day so that they're going to be good um, next month. So I do a lot of those similar things, but something that we have the ability to do now and the privilege to do is that I can openly talk about it and I can openly teach it to other people. So people don't have to rely on reading a book, though. I mean, I'm a writer. I want people to read all the books, but I I can teach people face to face and I can tell them what works for me. And what doesn't work for me and encourage them to do those things that they feel like they're drawn to do, but maybe don't have the courage or the confidence to try. So that's one big difference. But the practice itself, I don't know that it's really changed. We um, we joke about there's a ceremonial magic and then there's what I do, which is sort of I reach in my pockets and see what's in my pockets and I go pull a little plantain and some rabbit tobacco and stir it all together. And for some people, there is a sense of witchcraft being a very high ordered religion. And you will hear some people talk about that they are a member of a witchcraft religious tradition. But for people like me, it's not necessarily a religious thing, though it is connected with spirits and with spirit things, but it's not necessarily a religion. Let's talk a little about folklore. Places like the United Kingdom have pixies and elves in Europe, and we have goblins, haints, and the Mothman. Don't forget the Mothman. Did we (laughs) bring our fairies and spirits over with us when we immigrated from Europe or wherever, or were they already here? I'm going to say yes to both of those, because I think already there are spirits that are attached to land. And these are some of the oldest mountains in the world. And how could they not have spirits attached to them? But I also think that a lot of my people, certainly, they brought some of that with them. And they they absolutely brought the folklore with them. But now you bring up Mothman, and I've got a question for you. Oh, no. Are all cryptids men? I mean, there's the Boojum, there's Mothman, there's the New Jersey Devil. Are they all boys? Well, that's the that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> so I, I can't say for sure. West Virginia has something like twenty two or twenty three different cryptids. I don't know whether they're all male or, or whether there are any any females in there. That's a good question. I'll have to put that to the Mothman Museum. Maybe you consider yourself a keeper of tradition. Okay, what sort of traditions need to be kept? Well, it's interesting to me because, I mean, obviously I'm a native of this area. What happened for me uh, back in, golly, 2008 or nine, I was invited up to Harvard to do um, a colloquium called uh, Forging Folklore. 
I presented a paper, you know, it's a colloquium, it's a 20 minute paper, and then there's a Q&A session. We've all done them. And I did a paper about Appalachian folk magic, and I called it Hill Folks Hoodoo and the Question of Cultural Strip Mining. And it was a it was a kind of lamentation about a culture that I felt was fading as more and more people came into the region. So out of that paper came my very first book, which I thought would be my last book, my only book. Um, it's called Staubs in Ditchwater, A Friendly and Helpful Introduction to Hill Folks Hoodoo. A little slim primer of a book where I just wanted to write down all the stuff that I remembered and that I practiced and that my cousins taught me, you know, all that stuff. And then I went out on tour with that book, as one does. And I was in, I was in Raynell, West Virginia, as a matter of fact. I'd been up there to visit some friends and I was in a closed elementary school. I just had a bunch of mason jars full of stuff and talked about what I do and what my family had always done and the people around me. And I came to find out that I was premature in thinking that this practice was fading because there were still plenty of people who were doing it. But they just weren't on social media calling themselves whatever they call themselves. They just were doing it the way it had always been done. Everybody knew that if they went to Miss Renee, she knew what to do about toothache. And everybody knew if they wanted to dig a new well, they had to go to Uncle Walter because Walter always could douse for water. And so it was all still there. It just wasn't where I was seeing it. So that made me jump with joy, of course. But it made me keep writing because I just kept collecting more and more and more. I started thinking about the song catchers that were here at the beginning of the last century. And they'd come into these um, the hollers and fastnesses and, and they'd hear music on somebody's porch. And they'd go, well, good heavens, I believe that's Child Ballad 714, Barbara Allen. And so they started tracking the music back to its source. So I started tracking Appalachian folk magic back to some of its sources. And I've been calling myself a spell catcher. So I go back to uh, Britain uh, every three or four years or so. And I hang out in the borders between Scotland and England. And I just go and talk to people about what their practices are to see if I can find commonalities between the things that we do. That's one of the sources of our folk magic down here in the Southern Islands. And also the Pennsylvania Dutch people, the Deitch. I went up and hung out with them and spent some time in their library and had a great time uh, researching things like the Song of the Churn. The new book, Small Magics. What would you like to tell me about that one? It came out of a, a, a fight on social media, if you can imagine such a thing. I've been teaching a class now for, well, pre-COVID, so probably six years, that I call Simple Practical Magic. And it's the building blocks of doing the energetic, magical work that I do. I was uh, observing an argument on Facebook, and I said, good Lord, people, do I need to write a book of my Simple Practical Magic class? And people were enthusiastic about that, as was my editor at Llewellyn. So... It basically is that class, and it's just the building blocks of any kind of magical practice. We're at the part of the year where uh, certain, I guess there's certain days, uh, Samhain, and then the uh, winter solstice, right? Right, and we actually pronounce that Samhain. Samhain, okay. Samhain, that's good, though. Um, Samhain is like a triple hitter holiday. It is the uh, third harvest. It is the end of the, I guess I would say, liturgical year. It's the end of the year. And it's also the new year. So there's a lot that goes on in that period between October the 30th and then November the 2nd or 3rd. We do it honoring the ancestors, which Southerners, I'm telling you, we have got the market cornered on that because we've been doing that for years. And then from that point until the winter solstice is the darkest time of the year. I mean, literally the darkest time of the year. If we look to nature about how we do things, that's when nature rests. So it's a glory in October. And you live in a place like I do where you're going to be inundated with tourists who are coming to see the colors and you're not going to want to be on the road. And 
Then what happens once those colors fade is a lot of those people go home and we should have some quiet time. We should be able to rest ourselves as the soil rests, as the earth rests. But what do we do? We schedule two of the biggest, loudest holidays ever during that time. So you don't even have time to rest before it's Thanksgiving. And you've got to figure out who is baking the pie this year and which pie is it going to be? Is it going to be sweet potato, which half the people love, or is it going to be pumpkin, which the other half love? So you end up making two pies that taste basically the same. Once you get done with that, then you're into the fury and flurry of Christmas. So we don't we don't take the time as a culture to rest like we should. Byron, thanks for talking with me. It's been delightful. Thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate you. That was Village Witch and author H. Byron Ballard. Her new book is Small Magics, Practical Secrets from an Appalachian Village Witch. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Todd Burge, John Blissard, the Dirty River Boys, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.